0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I am confident that each and every one of us has experienced some kind of pain, uh, specifically in relationships, whether that's betrayal, the withholding of forgiveness, or abandonment, and I'm sure the list could go on. And the question is, how do we restore ourselves and restore these relationships? And this is what we'll talk about today with our guest, Molly LaCroix, In her book book titled Restoring Relationships, right at the beginning of her book, she writes this, why do people seeking support and healing in the church sometimes leave feeling more broken than when they arrive? Why isn't the Christian community a place where people can consistently experience freedom from the myriad issues plaguing them? Why do we talk so much about love, but often fail to be loving? And I know that these questions that she writes resonate for me and so many of you, and these questions and more are what we will explore today. Molly Lacroix is a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice and specializes in treating clients who experienced early adversity. Molly has the highest possible level of training in the interfamily systems model. And she and her husband live in Central Oregon, and they visit their children and grandchildren in Southern California as often as possible. Molly, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Michael. It's great to be with you.
0: Yeah. Well, the question I ask all of our guests is, right as we begin, what would you like our listeners to know about you?
1: Well, you mentioned, you know, my favorite thing, which is being a, a grandma, my, my three grandchildren. Well, only one of them can actually say my name because they're, they're too young. But <laughs> they call me, I'm Minnie to my grandchildren. And uh, that is a great job. And but more probably appropriately for your audience, uh, I think it's important for people to know that I got my master's in marriage and family therapy at a seminary. So, I've always been interested in the integration of secular models of psychotherapy and um, scripture, theology, um, doctrine. You know, so that's that's my passion and my training.
0: And I, I picked up from reading the book that you see a great integration uh, between those things: scripture, theology, and and uh, models of therapy, rather than any sort of conflict. Would that be correct?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's, you know, it goes back to the truism. All all truth is God's truth. And mm-hmm. so psychotherapy models are based on observing humans and how they function. And there are lots of, of very helpful healing modalities out there. The one that I um, prioritize in my work is called the internal family systems model. And it's the one I have found to be most congruent with mm. Christian spirituality, so it's been extremely helpful.
0: Wonderful. Well, let's talk about your book. You you divided it up or, or structured it in four parts. And the first part is titled Wounding the Wounded. And it reminds me of a quote I once heard, and I think it was uh, a college professor who I heard say this, when she said, the Christian army is the only one who shoots their wounded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in yeah. this part of the book, you speak about our tendency to judge Uh, judge on who is in and who is out. And you make an observation about how this kind of judgment really breaks our connection to one another. Uh, Can you say more about that, that connection between judgment and disconnection?
1: Yeah, well, and anything, fundamentally, anything that we are feeling toward another person that isn't loving is going to break connection. And judgment is one of those things. Um, there's a lot of that in our world, not just in our Christian community right now. it's you know, it's a way of, you know the othering. your audience can't see me putting quotes around that word, but <laughs> you know, placing people in in another category and diminishing their humanity. and And that's really at the heart of judgment. And we all do this all the time. So it's really about recognizing, and catching ourselves, when we're doing that and saying, wait a minute, you know, kind of using our little assessment to say, is this motivated by love? You know, am I categorizing this person in this way? Um, as because, because that's a loving thing to do. Um, and, and judgment is just one of the many things that block our connection.
0: You, you just use the word dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. And it does seem to be everywhere right now. Uh, Maybe I'm just on social media too much. I don't know. But (laughs) what do you what in your work have you discovered is behind that? Because I don't my assumption is and I think what's behind my question is I don't think a lot of us would do that intentionally or even say this is what we are doing. And yet, we can stand back and see it. And I'm wondering what have you learned is behind this dehumanization of other people?
1: Fundamentally, it's fear. Hmm. Fear drives these unloving responses and whether it's judgment or legalism, you know, some of the other things that I tackle in the first part of the book that wound other people, even something that's as supposedly well-intentioned as advice giving can actually be a a fear-driven strategy to keep someone's pain at a distance, You know, that's that it's almost that reactive, someone comes and they're in distress and instead of sitting with them and allowing them to simply feel what they're feeling, you know, part of us jumps in with Oh, well, here's what you need to do. And that isn't loving because it's more loving to just let each other feel what we're feeling as a starting point.
0: Mm. So what what are the results of then of the, these breaks in relationship and this disconnection uh, that we experience in all of the different ways that that it happens what are the results in personal lives
1: well when we're disconnected from one another to the varying degrees you know we're we're also and i always think in threes you know we're disconnected from god to an extent we're disconnected from ourselves as we're disconnected from others because you know, we can't separate these things. And, and the result is a lot of pain, you know, so unmet needs. Um, when we're disconnected, we often speculate if there's a void between say me and some important person in my life, you know, this is something I used to joke. If I could do the research, I'd find it to be hundred percent true that our speculation is always has a negative, uh, valence. So we don't, you know, say that friend who hasn't called in a while, we speculate about what did I say? Why? What did I do wrong? They must not like me anymore. We don't think, gosh, they must be hurting right now. Maybe I should reach out to them. Well, maybe sometimes we do, but a lot of times that speculation is negative. So anything that disconnects us leaves us open to that. Um, and we're not going to get our most fundamental need met, which is for connection, which is mm-hmm. that intimate, you know, being loved and loving, um, the other when, when we're blocked, you know, I, these, these, what I call fear based strategies, I call them strategies because they, the intent is to protect ourselves from pain. And, and we do a lot of that. And it backfires because it blocks us from the connection we need to heal the pain. Hmm.
0: Well, I love that you you start the book there because it really, I feel like it gives us a, which is your intent, gives us a starting point of understanding what's actually disrupting us, disconnecting us, Mm -hmm. breaking our relationships. And then in part two, you talk about understanding ourselves And I think it's probably my favorite part of the book. It's uh, the chapter titled Brain Basics, which I think is so fascinating. Um, The limited amount that I've read about the human brain just always – it's always, always so compelling to read. And I know that we don't know much about the brain comparatively yet anyway. But I'd love for you just to walk us through some of the physiological uh, realities that happen in our brains during times of struggle.
1: Yeah, well, it really, it goes to back to the beginning of how we enter this world as humans. And I love that you like that part of the book because I wrestled, I love interpersonal neurobiology and I thought, <laughs> how am I going to take this topic and make it accessible to people? Because I my think you contention, did. And I'm, oh, well, I'm a bit you. of
0: a nerd, by the way. So I, all the science <laughs> stuff, yeah, I, I can nerd out on that for a long time.
1: Great. Um, The reason I felt it was so important to put that information in the book is because I want readers to understand um, why humans are so vulnerable, because ultimately it is fear of vulnerability that's driving the things that disconnect us. And so when we can understand and accept our vulnerability, that opens the path to connection. And so we come into this world as humans with incredibly immature brains, um, the most immature by far of any mammal. And so our environment shapes our brains um, Hmm. to a very great degree. And yes, we come in with a certain temperament and we have a a genetic loading. But we've even found in the field of um, epigenetics that our genes are expressed as a result of our experiences. So we can have a genetic predisposition to something. But that, other than a few key things like eye color and hair color and things, it's not determinative. It's, it's there. It may, it may happen, but environment makes it happen. So, so our environment shapes our brain. And, um, and one of the core things that happens is we have experiences beginning with our primary caregivers and we make meaning of those experiences. We're, we're meaning our brains are meaning making machines and every interaction begins to, to form those neural pathways that are the way our brain functions. and it lays down these tracks. And one section of that um, one chapter in that part of the book is about attachments and the nature of our attachment to our primary caregivers. It's because it is so formative. And essentially we need caregivers who are attuned to our needs and whose response is matches our our temperament. Hmm. So we can have an incredibly loving parent who is paying close attention to our needs, but still have a disconnect if, for instance, the parent doesn't understand that a child is quite sensitive, and they dismiss that sensitivity thinking that's the loving thing to do, the child makes the meaning that there's something wrong with me. Hmm. You know, so it's always scary for parents to hear stuff like this because they think, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh, you know? And the fact is that I believe that the vast majority of parents are doing the absolute best they can do. And none of them are perfect. None of us are perfect. And one, one good thing is that repairing the ruptures of attachment that are inevitable actually strengthens the relationship. So that's Mm. good news. Um, and, and part of my hope is that as parents understand themselves and do their own work of healing, they are going to be much more attuned to their children and much more able to meet their needs. Um, so we make meaning of all these experiences. And sadly, inevitably, um, because children are primarily wired, wired to survive, they are also very prone to believing that if something doesn't go well with those primary caregivers, it's their fault. And so that, that's wow. the, the beginning, that foundation of some of those distorted beliefs. I'm unlovable. I'm unworthy. I'm not good enough. There are many, many types of beliefs that, are, that occur as a result of experiences that might not qualify as traumatic. And that's why I like the term adversity, because often people say, "Whoa, no, no, I didn't suffer trauma. But if you're human and you didn't have a perfect parent, you've experienced adversity and and our brains adapt to it, which is a beautiful aspect of God's creation, the way he designed us to adapt to our experiences. But sometimes those adaptations, especially later in life, can become dysfunctional they can serve us well at a time not serve us so well down the line
0: so when you talked about this idea of adaptation is that is our brain forming neuropathways that that are become patterns over time and they get was it wrapped in myelin i think is the <laughs> the insulator there is that what's happening at, at a like at a physical level
1: that's right yeah physiologically these experiences you know, it's that what fires together, wires together. So we have an experience. And of course, if we have multiple experiences, it's going to be a stronger neural network for positive or not positive. So if a child really is growing up in an environment where the not good enough parenting is is in the more traumatic end of things, where there is a lot of say neglect or outright abuse, um, Those neural networks are strong, you know, because unfortunately, again, because we're wired to survive, the negative things tend to get stored more um, in a more in a solid way than positive things. Um, Mm. And so the adaptation is, okay. this negative experience, this adverse experience is now I hold pain. I might hold a distorted belief an emotion such as shame. I've got some distressing images of an interaction. And this is now a threat to the system. Mm. And so the adaptation is to try to keep that out of awareness, and, and to protect ourselves from it. Mm. And so we have a whole um, cast of characters inside us, who we call protectors, because they are working hard to keep the pain at bay or to push it back when it surfaces.
0: Um, Bessel van der Kolk wrote the book, The Body Keeps the Score. I'm wondering how is what's happening in our brains connected to to the rest of our body? I mean, I know it's the control Mm -hmm. center, but are there ways that our bodies then begin carrying this around that we may not even be aware of?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a tremendous, a tremendous book, the best about the impact of what we call developmental trauma, those things that happen early in life. And yeah, our bodies are not separate from our brains, you know, so you can think about like the, the field of interpersonal neurobiology is, you know, the the father of which is of is Daniel Siegel. Um, He talks a lot about the mind is both, you know, intrapersonal and interpersonal because our minds are shaped in relationship. And so we can't, you know, distinguish them, um, from, uh, one another and then, and likewise in our body. So there's a whole, um, one of the things that's kind of transformed our understanding is the, what's called the polyvagal theory, um, by a Mm -hmm. a scientist named Stephen Porges and looking at that, you know, we've talked about, you know, a lot of people are aware of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system, and sort of the fight or flight or the freeze response. But he identified the most evolved aspect of the nervous system is, um, is that when we are in a space for connection. And so we have, you know, we, we have this capacity for being connected, and then we also can get hijacked into a hypervigilant state or a hypo aroused state. Um, so there's, there's so much about this (laughs) that we can talk about, but all of that, these, these nerve, this nervous system runs throughout our body. And so when, um, when events happen in life, even, you know, joyful events, we feel it in our body. And, um, again, so the, these neural networks, even though they reside in our brain, they are connected to our whole system. And right. so so when we tap into either a positive memory or a distressing memory we will often notice a physiological response maybe mm. our heart rate changes our breathing changes we feel tension in our body we might even feel an impulse to do something you know one of the things that's happens when there's a traumatic event is often there is an experience of powerlessness and we cannot act physically in a way to protect ourselves Either that's because it's a child with an adult or two adults, but one is overpowering the other. And so that all gets held because it's never expressed. It's meant to be expressed. We're meant to be able to act in ways to protect ourselves. And when we can't, that gets held in our body um, and is part of the traumatic um, memory. So those memories are thoughts, images, sensations, emotions, emotions and even
0: impulses. And is this what has been labeled uh, triggers? Is that the kind of thing you're talking about?
1: Yeah, yeah. So a trigger is something that occurs in life that lights up that neural network in our brain that holds this distress. Yeah. So the trigger is kind of a, maybe an external event could be as something as slight as an eye roll from someone important in your life and then boom, here comes the neural network that lights up. That's something you're carrying from when you were three years old (laughs) and, and a parent shamed you and looked at you in a way that, that your child registered as, Oh, you know, I'm defective in some way.
0: Yeah. So this is in the part of the book, um, called understanding ourselves. And why is this, uh, this understanding of the way that we're wired physiologically, why is this an important place to begin the process of healing and wholeness and transformation?
1: Because when we grasp how vulnerable we are and that every human is vulnerable and that all of us have experienced some adversity and all of us have to adapt to it, it, um, It opens space for loving ourselves, you know, and in Mm. the book, one of the things that as I was writing about that, it was kind of an unexpected um, moment in the writing of the book of the manuscript where I sat back and I thought, you know, literally everything about Jesus life was vulnerable from conception to the cross, every, you know, if you if you look at every single thing, you know, so. One of the key messages there, I believe, is the redemption of vulnerability. And we've, you know, social science has discovered this. You know, you cannot have good intimate relationships if you aren't able to be vulnerable with one another. Um, But vulnerability is something we deeply fear because it's risky. You know, when we're vulnerable, we are open to the possibility of wounding. So it's this fundamental paradox. And I believe it's, you know, when we look at Jesus' life, it's God's word to us to say, you know, I'm redeeming vulnerability hmm. and, and vulnerability is the path to healing and it's the path to connection.
0: Yeah. I've always joked that I'm going to discover a way that success and power are the way to redemption and healing. <laughs> <laughs> I think right. I'll be looking yeah. around a long time. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I, I, I enjoy too about this part of the book is in the way that you talked about it was just seeing again and again how integrated we are as human beings, that so often we talk about our soul or spirit, and this is in some strains of the Christian tradition, as though there's something like other, and then this physical part of us is the part that we're going to abandon. But just the integration of our neural networks, our bodies, the way everything is wired together um, is a really, really beautiful uh, thing to, consider mm-hmm. uh, especially when it comes to vulnerability and it comes to healing and wholeness you um, you move on from part two into part three and this one is called a new spiritual practice and you write the journey of healing begins in our inner world because that is where we hold our wounds and protective strategies and I point this out because I've seen both in my life and in the life of others that in an effort to stay away, from what's within us, we're often busy pointing the finger at others. And I've even seen in some cases in in unhealthy therapy enables us to do that. Um, So can you talk more about what the inner work looks like and maybe also why we so often quickly point the finger outside as a way of keeping ourselves away from our inner world?
1: Yeah, well, it helps to start with that, that tendency to point the finger at the other. Um, because as we, um, turn our attention inside ourselves and begin to understand ourselves in a different way, the first thing we encounter are these protective strategies. We're loaded up with them. (laughs) And so, um, and some of those strategies are a way to protect ourselves from feeling the pain of our wounds, you know, to keep it at bay. So they're sort of proactive. And those are the things we do to control other people's perception of us. That might mm-hmm. have to do with our appearance. Uh, it could have to do with our accomplishments. It's you know it says you know what you were alluded to before you know power and and all of those things are ways to manage people's perception of us. And they and they you know they're a a uniform or a shield that we wear. Um, there are n- numerous strategies. Perfectionism. Um, You know, all the things we do to to keep up with societal norms, for instance. So we're trying to manage people's perception of us. Um, Other of these protective strategies are more reactive. So the pain surfaces and I have to push it back down because I don't want to be overwhelmed with pain. And those are um, at the more extreme end are things like substance abuse and other compulsive behaviors. Um, but there are a lot of socially sanctioned uh, behaviors in that realm, which are you know workaholism and overexercise and all kinds of things that are, again are socially sanctioned. But they're really about numbing ourselves from pain and distracting mm. ourselves from it. Mm. So we've got this this whole <laughs> stable of protectors um, in us, and um, and some of that you know it protects me to focus on your you know, the things you aren't doing well. So as we're talking, you know, I've been thinking about that, you know, the blaming game that couples play. Um, You know, if, if my spouse would just take out the garbage and do the dishes and, you know, (laughs) my life would be so much better, you know, and obviously there's some much more significant examples of why couples get into the the, the finger pointing that goes on—that's that's really really common, um, and it's it it. If I can focus on this other person and and what they're doing, I don't have to focus on me. Um, and so so we live out of these protectors, these parts of us that are that have they've adopted these strategies for good reason. They mean well, no matter how dysfunctional the results of what they're doing. They're well intentioned. Um, but they've taken on jobs because our experiences required it to adapt. And now we're stuck in this place. And Mm so the path begins with, with, um, differentiating what, you know, what we think of as, you know, there are a lot of names for itself is, Mm -hmm. is what this model I use in my work, internal family systems calls the leader of the internal family. I like that term leader, um, You know, this leadership is in harmony with the Holy Spirit, where we can draw on the resources that we have because we're created in God's image. And so we begin by differentiating. There is a leader in all of us because all of us are created in God's image. We all have those resources we can tap, Uh, Mm -hmm. whether you call it your true self or your highest and best self, whatever term works. um, When we can differentiate and recognize the leader is different from the protectors in the system the protectors are another category of internal family members. Again, took on these jobs because they had to. And we start by befriending them. It's like any other relationship. Well, tell me more about why you're doing this. You know, when, you know, so-and-so does that, why do you show up and point the finger at them? You know, why are you critical feeling critical of them? Tell me more, you know? So that's the beginning.
0: And I, 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 I love that part about befriending our protectors and the exiles. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to, to give a little bit more about the exiles too. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminded me of a fellow named Bill Plotkin. He's a wilderness-based depth psychologist mm-hmm. uh, based out of Durango, Colorado. And in his book, Wild Mind, he refers to these protectors as the loyal soldiers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, yes. The ones that uh, they, they formed in childhood as a way of protecting us And oftentimes the reason we don't grow up – this is his language – and we live as adolescents no matter how old we are is because we try to overcome the loyal soldier rather than, in your words, befriending them. He would say welcoming them home and thanking them. Uh, But I'd love for you to talk more about that because I think it's such a – there was a – tremendous similarity between your work Mm -hmm. and his. And I, I have found it in my own growth, such an incredibly helpful Mm -hmm. perspective and insight when it comes to healing and and growing and becoming more whole.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it is, it's incredibly powerful because it is loving ourselves, you know? So, um, if you use a, a more, um, extreme example, you know, people, you know, might understand how revolutionary this is. So let's say a part of me decided that the best strategy for numbing the pain of my trauma is to drink to excess. And, and so the strategy to get through life is to rely on alcohol to numb the pain. And as you know, as you know, as your listeners know, that has a lot of Of that comes at a cost, you know, to Mm -hmm. relationships and all sorts of ways to, you know, to the person's ability to, you know, to function as as an adult. But this part of the system means well, you know, it works, it does numb the pain. And so, you know, that doesn't mean that we say, okay, go ahead and keep doing it. But when we can start by saying, I get it, you mean well. You are doing this because you think there is no other way. Now, the leader of the system brings the hope and says, what if there's another way? Hmm. What if we could heal that wound that you are so worried about so that it never can overwhelm the system again? Would you be willing to work with me? Would you be willing to partner with me? You know? And so... That's why it's so revolutionary, because no matter what the strategy of the part of the system is, you know, we've had it's incredible when a person has a part of them that um, thinks the only way to end the pain is to take them out, you know, to end mm-hmm. their life. And when you can negotiate with those parts and say, I know that, you know, you first of all, if you ask them, um, do you actually want the person to die? They don't. They will say no. No, they don't. But they don't think they have a choice. And that's where we bring right. the hope, because there's always hope of healing. You know, to yeah. me, that is the foundation of you know, Jesus announced his ministry in Luke four, eighteen and nineteen. It's all about healing. We have yeah. hope for healing. That is it's not about like white knuckling life and going to heaven. No. The kingdom is now we can heal now you know um and so there's real power in befriending no matter what the strategy is understanding that is not the that is not the intended role of this member of the internal family you know god is multiple created us in his image we're multiple um and and this multiplicity was just meant to be a beautiful reflection of god's image and what happens when adversity occurs is parts have to take on these jobs. And ultimately, when the wound is healed, they get to give up those jobs and they get right. to go back to being whatever they were meant to be.
0: Yeah. A question that came up in my mind when I was as I was listening to you is we we have a lot of, I would say, for lack of a better term, militarized language in our Mm -hmm. spiritual world. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean things like combat, overcome, defeat. Mm -hmm. These are all, you know, uh, language of whether it's conflict, fighting, war. And I was sitting with someone a few weeks ago, and we were talking about their loyal soldier, to use Plotkin's word, or to use yours, the protectors and exiles. And he made the comment, I have to combat that. And one of the questions that came up in my mind as I was listening to you and thinking about that conversation is when we try to combat our protectors, is that almost like a self-defeating exercise because they're there to protect us? And if we're going to war with them, it's only going to increase things and make things worse. Would that would – that, uh, what would your response be to that?
1: Yeah, well. Well, what's happening in that case is it's another protector who's polarized with another, this other member of the internal family, just like in our external families, there are are conflicts. Well, there are conflicts between the parts inside us as well. So self, you know, this leader of the internal family who's in harmony with the Holy Spirit is never going to go, go to war (laughs) with another part of the system. That's Mm -hmm. not loving. That is not God. And so, so that's how we catch ourselves. So, What's really common as a, a common polarity, let's say there is one of these, what we call a category of protectors, we call them firefighters. They're like first responders because they will they will douse the flames no matter the consequences. They don't care if you ruin the furniture. You know, so some, you know, some of the reactive behavior, you know, has a lot of consequences. Well, you can just imagine that there are parts of the system that are highly critical of that, you know. You idiot, you drank again. What were you thinking? You know, so they're they are at odds with one another. They are in conflict with one another. And that's where you have to on you know the self has perspective of realizing that and coming into the system and saying, okay, just like, say, a couple in conflict, we have those inner conflicts, we need to work with both sides of that conflict. So a lot of the work that we do in healing, Is around those polarities. Um, Mm. But if we come at any of our protectors with um, judgment, with this, even with an intention of making them change, it's going to backfire. And that's, again, how we differentiate these qualities that the self or leader of the system has would be curiosity. Tell me more about why you're doing what you're doing Hmm. and a true intent to heal, but not an agenda, which is a big difference energetically. Like I intend to help you, but I don't have an agenda of telling you, you know, like you better stop doing this right now. That's going to backfire every time.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Well, you get into the, the final part of the book, the fourth part and talk about loving others as we love ourselves. And you write about our fear of grief and our fear of vulnerability. And I'm wondering um, what's behind that fear? What have you discovered is behind that fear in your work?
1: Well, I hate to sound so repetitive, but it's always a, <laughs> we always are afraid of some sort of vulnerability. So in the last part of the book, I look at common causes of distress. Um, loss, betrayal, addiction, and physical and mental illness. Um, Because these are the human things that we are going to, you know, most of us will experience either directly or in our families. And um, anything that, that provokes distress will also evoke these protective responses in our system. And so my hope is helping people look at these different kinds of vulnerability and say, how does my system respond to this? Hmm. You know, so some of us have a great capacity to be present with someone experiencing a loss, um, perhaps because they've had that experience themselves. And they know that what helps is simply to be there physically beside the person without words. Other people have never experienced uh, loss or they've never processed the losses they've experienced. And so they hold a lot of it. They hold a lot of unresolved grief. And so the the idea of being with someone else's grief is just, whew, you talk about triggering. You know, it just mm-hmm. lights up their whole system. And so they're much more likely to respond with a protective, you know, sort of minimizing is, is a big one. Um, oh, you'll get over this. I, I worked at a hospice for four years, and I can't tell you how many times I heard stories for, like, a woman who'd lost her husband of over 50 years being asked three weeks later when she was going to start dating. I mean, you know, people, <laughs> Americans have a real hard time with grief. <laughs> Our culture is all about like being stoic and moving forward and being positive And, and when someone's grieving, they need space and time to be sad. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, so that's, it, it's all about how, because of each of our individual experiences, how is my system adapted to vulnerability, to pain, to distress, to adversity and learning that and befriending these protective members of my system. And you've, you've used the word exile. We call the wounded members of the system exiles because the protectors want to keep them in the basement of the family home, locked up where they can't be a threat. Um, And so we negotiate with these protectors, gain their trust, meet with the exiles. Let's say an exile is a part of the system. Let's say someone lost a parent at a young age, and they just didn't have the support that they needed to process that grief. Um, And so it's stuck. One of the things I found, again, working at a hospice is it does not matter how long ago that loss occurred. If it hasn't given, if, if, if the system hasn't had a chance to heal, it is still in there. Um, the full weight of it is still, is still in there. And so, um, so, you know, each of us have, has a unique experience. And when we can learn our own system and heal our own wounds, then when we are, you know, in relationship with another person who's going through something, we're going to be able to be a loving presence, which is fundamentally what we need. Love can take mm-hmm. many forms. Love can look like courage. Love can look like creativity. I mean, um, but, but that's how we then reconnect.
0: Yeah. And you conclude the, your book with an invitation toward transformation, and that's over and above uh, exhortation. And I'd love for you just to uh, help us understand what the difference is between those two things and why it's so important.
1: Well, one of the things that inspired the book was my own reactivity to, uh, in various church contexts, even, even worship music, you know, just in, in myriad contexts, uh, a lot of exhortation, you know, do this, do that. This is the way you should think. This is the way you should act. And, and that's simply not helpful. It does not <laughs> help a struggling person. They know that, you know. I mean, I, I was just writing a piece this morning about why, why we are no, know we're beloved, but we don't feel like we're beloved. You know, I mean, we can know a lot in our heads that we do not feel viscerally. We don't, mm. you know, it doesn't penetrate you know, be, below our neck. And, um, and so that's my beef with exhortation and that what we are really called to in this life, I believe is transformation and that requires healing. Um, and so this, what I call a a spiritual practice of connecting with these different parts of ourselves, befriending them, helping them, you know, release the wounds that they hold shapes and shifts the whole system and opens mm-hmm. more space um, for loving ourselves, others, and God.
0: Well, Molly, I'm so glad you put the effort into writing this book. I think it'll be helpful for a lot of people. And, um, yeah, so many, so many insights and eye-opening moments for me going through it. So w- where can our listeners find you online?
1: My website is mollylacroix.com, and LaCroix is L-A-C-R-O-I-X, like the water, <laughs> and I'm on Instagram and Facebook uh, at Molly Lacroix, L M F T. Those are the those are the primary ways. Through my website, they can find out about the book, how to follow me on social media, read my blog, you know, that kind of thing.
0: Perfect. And uh, where is your book available?
1: Just through Amazon. Okay. Yep. So there are well, links knows on the is, I think. to get that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
0: Somebody listening to this is going to have that book on their doorstep in two hours. So, <laughs> with the way Amazon works now, uh, well, Amazon. I will put your information in the in the notes uh, for this episode. Uh, Molly, thank you so much for being here on the Changing Faith podcast. I so appreciate your work.
1: No, oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to great conversation.
0: And thank you to all of you once again for joining with us for another episode of the Changing Faith podcast. My prayer for us is that we would be those who come to understand deep in our bones that we are pursued by a God who loves deeply and freely. And because of this healing, wholeness, transformation is possible. And I pray that we would become courageous enough to take the journey of transforming our fears into love and doing that through deep connection. So thank you again to Molly for being with us and thank you for joining with us for another episode of the podcast. That is it for today. And so until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.